I'm Tracy McCauley. And I'm Liz Zuleika. We are cardiology pharmacists, educators, and self-declared literature crusaders. With the help of national cardiology pharmacy experts, we at Cardioscripts aim to keep you up to date. In this episode of Cardioscripts, we talk to Dr. Ted Berry about the DAPA-HF trial and just where SGLT2 inhibitors fit in heart failure therapy. Enjoy the episode. Joining me today on Cardioscripts is Ted Berry. He has been a clinical pharmacist at the University of Wisconsin, where he primarily cares for patients managed by the Advanced Heart Failure Team. In addition to patient care, he is also active in providing education, both experientially and didactic. He also has presented both locally and nationally on a variety of heart failure topics. I'm so grateful that he was willing to sit down with me today and share his perspectives on this exciting, groundbreaking heart failure trial. Welcome, Ted, to Cardioscripts. Thank you very much, Tracy. I'm excited to be here. Before we dive into all of your thoughts, Ted, let me share with everyone a brief overview of the DAPA-HF trial. Investigators were trying to answer the question, does dapagliflozin, an inhibitor of the sodium glucose co-transporter, or SGLT2, prevent outcomes in patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction, regardless of their type 2 diabetes status? So sort of a new take on this. The results were subsequently published in the New England Journal of Medicine in September. DAPA-HF was a phase three multi-center placebo-controlled trial. This trial included adults with an EF less than 40 and New York Heart Association class two through four symptoms. It excluded type one diabetics and those with recent treatment with SGLT2 inhibitors. It also importantly excluded folks with uh, systolic blood pressure less than 90 or EGFR less than 30. The primary outcome was a composite of worsening heart failure, which was defined as hospitalization or a visit resulting in the need for IV therapy for heart failure or death from cardiovascular causes. A little over 4,700 patients were randomized. The average age was about 66 years old. 77% of the patients were male and about 14% of them were from North America. 42% of the patients were type 2 diabetics, but otherwise the rest of the patients were not diagnosed with diabetes. The primary endpoint occurred in 16.3% of dipagliflozin patients and 21.2% of placebo patients. This was a number needed to treat of 20. So, Ted, there's a history of anti-diabetic meds causing heart failure, but now this. So what are your overall thoughts about this trial? Well, Tracy, I think um, this is really big news within the heart failure community. Within the past 10 years now, we've had a couple of big drugs, Secubitril Velsardin, obviously, with the Paradigm trial, um, and then now Dipagliflozin with the DAPA uh, HF trial that have really offered us new insights into not only the disease process and the pathophysiology behind heart failure, but also in giving our patients some more therapeutic options to hopefully help not only uh, curb disease progression, but also to, to help improve quality of life as well. I think the DAPA HF trial really took kind of the signals that we had found or were seeing with the other SGLT2 trials, Canvas with Canagliflozin, Empereg with Empagliflozin, and then Declare Timmy 58 as well, which were kind of showing us, obviously, there's also a benefit in your patients with just general ASCBD, 
But also what we saw in a few of those trials was a reduction in heart failure hospitalization and an emergence of heart failure in those patients. So that was really the impetus behind looking at dipagliflozin in this vein. Ultimately, I think what we, we ended up finding was regardless of diabetic status, there was an obvious benefit in the primary outcome that was looking at, um, as you, again, you mentioned CV death, rehospitalization rate, and then uh, I guess as they kind of worded it, urgent clinic visit needed for heart failure as well. Um, I think the other thing that I would highlight is that this was a pretty typical patient population. When you're going through the demographic data, obviously no real baseline differences in characteristics between folks, but for the most part, we were looking at a, a decently sick group of folks, NYHA 2 to 3. Almost half of the patients had had previous hospitalization for heart failure, right around 48% in both groups. So this is not just your standard run-of-the-mill heart failure group that's just walking on the streets. I, I think this is a little bit sicker population than some people have made it out to be. And then when you look at baseline or background therapy, a majority of patients were on almost... Uh, 90% were on ACE inhibitor ARB or ARNI, 96% on beta blocker, 70% on MRAs. Good background therapy as well. I think another one of the, the criticisms is that a majority of patients weren't on ARNI therapy with sacubitril valsartan, only about 10% or so were on that. So that kind of brings up the question of if you had someone on maxed out kind of, I guess, what we would call triple therapy and heart failure before all this data came out with, with the, the impact of maybe looked a little bit different with folks that were taking sacubitril valsartan. Although when they looked at the secondary analyses in that small group of patients, that 10% of patients, they found that the, the primary outcome was preserved in both the, the sacubitril valsartan and non-sacubitril valsartan folks. So either way, new drug, new class, new therapeutic way of, of looking at heart failure. Um, and it really begs the question of where does this drug kind of fit in the armamentarium of our traditional HEFREF therapies. Can you speak a little bit about who was in this trial or maybe more importantly, who was out of this trial so that we make sure our application is somewhat consistent? Um, no, I think that's a great question, uh, Tracy. And just looking at the exclusion criteria again, individuals that um, had a history of type 1 diabetes mellitus were not included. Folks with symptoms of hypotension or systolic blood pressure of less than 95 also not included, I think, just with concerns that obviously the SGLT2s are potent glycosiuric uh, agents that can also cause brisk diuresis themselves. And they're, they're being studied as adjunctive diure uh, diuretics in the heart failure landscape. And then lastly, folks with a GFR of less than 30 were also not included, just given the fact that this drug is typically not used in folks with a GFR less than 30. But again, getting back to the folks that were included, I think it was, a, again, a pretty representative population of the, the typical heart failure patients. We see a majority of NYHA 2 to 3 folks that were, were included, which is fairly representative of the folks that we see in our clinics and even in the hospital. For the most part, I think it would be hard to extrapolate the results we saw to NYHA4 patients. So I think a question that a lot of folks are asking is the benefit of this was seen regardless of whether you were on sucubitrol valsartan. So the benefit was also seen in that subgroup of patients, you know, underpowered hypothesis generating, but it was seen. Do you have a gut feeling on which one you're doing first? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's it's very hard to answer. And I think a lot of us, especially pharmacists, sometimes like to have black and white answers. But this is where the art of medicine kind of comes into play. I, I guess what I would say is the magnitude of effect with dipagliflozin in this trial was 
more impressive than what we've seen with MRAs, ARNIs, beta blockers, or ACEs and ARBs as well. So it really begs the question of where do you start with either your baseline newly diagnosed TEFREP patient or even the, the patient that's on multiple therapies right now? And I think really what it comes down to is just patient-specific factors. You know, obviously, if you have someone sitting in front of you that has a very low blood pressure and, you know, they're on multiple agents and you'd like to initiate an SGLT2, I think the question you have to ask yourself is, do I have room with diuretic to maybe back off on that? Because personally, I, I would hate to have to decrease the dose of another one of my backbone therapies just to facilitate the initiation of this drug. I would rather have all of my traditional therapies maxed out prior to kind of playing around with the dosing for this drug or the initiation for this drug as well. But again, it, there's not a, a formulaic approach to this. I think it's really individualizing therapy to patients and irrespective of their diabetic status or their A1C status. I think we know from this trial now, and we'll probably soon find out from some of the ongoing trials with canagliflozin and pagliflozin if this is a class effect. For folks who haven't really done much with oral antidiabetics, is there anything we really ought to know about starting SGLT2 inhibitors in our patients? Plenty of primary literature out there that really helps to walk the, the clinician through decision-making, not only when these drugs are necessary, but then considerations in terms of the side effects um, that you see with these drugs or the potential ADRs. I think a lot of the attention-grabbing side effects, such as Fournier's gangrene and lower limb amputations, have... I think they were sensationalized a little bit. The, the amputation risk was seen in the canagliflozin trial uh, canvas in which it was a much sicker patient population that had a lot more peripheral artery disease than um, what we saw in the uh, Empereg trial or, or the, the Claritimi 58 trial. So I think you essentially just have to, to go into it with the understanding of patients that have severe PAD more than likely are probably not great candidates specifically for canagliflozin, I can't, I don't think we can make the same conclusions with the pagliflozin or impagliflozin from what we know so far. But undoubtedly, these drugs cause mycotic infections at a higher rate than placebo. They definitely increase the risk for euglycemic uh, DKA. So I think it, you treat it like anything where you obviously read the primary literature related to the drug, but also just educating yourself, whether it be through UpToDate or Lexicomp on some of the more common side effects as well um, to counsel patients with. So unfortunately, SGLT2s are still brand name drugs and are among the most expensive antidiabetics that we have. So how is this going to fit into an increasingly expensive heart failure regimen? Well, I, I think we already know that compliance is a major issue with any patient, whether it be heart failure or any disease across the spectrum. Trying to minimize the amount of drugs that we have people on is always paramount. With that said, cost-wise, these drugs are not cheap. They're expensive. I think until the FDA, FDA obviously um, approves dipagliflozin for this um, HEFREF indication, there's obviously going to be issues with payers wanting to pick this up. There's going to be lots of prior odds. It's going to be the same headaches that we've dealt with with Sucubitril Valsardin as well, which sometimes acts as a, a dissuading agent for clinicians to want to use these drugs when we know all of the, the time and effort that oftentimes goes into an ultimate denial for use. With that said, I think the landscape will obviously change over the next three to five years as we learn more about how the other drugs in this therapeutic class 
performed in relation to HEFREF patients. There's also data coming out in the HEFPEF population with these folks as well. Um, but I think it's like any new therapy within the heart failure uh, armamentarium. It's a slow uptick into practice when you look at beta blockers or MRAs and now sucubitril valsartanate. It typically takes 10 to 15 years for a new drug to really make its way into practice. Ted, do you have any final thoughts or takeaways that you want to make sure our audience hears about today? What will come up for pharmacists, obviously, is being kind of the experts related to pharmacotherapy, will be questions surrounding kind of the mechanism of why this drug is working in the heart failure population, irregardless of diabetic status. Um, and I think there's been, and there's been some good papers that have come out over the past two or three years speculating on the potential mechanisms behind this. I think obviously the things that come to mind or the big one that comes to mind is given the kind of diuretic effect and the antihypertensive effect of this drug, is that helping a little bit? I think that's potentially um, um, one mechanism there. I think the bigger thing and probably, and I think there's probably a lot in the background in terms of why this drug really works well, but one thing that doesn't get discussed as much is it really helps to shift the way that the heart metabolizes energy. Um, and it, it really, the way to kind of think about it is it makes the heart a little bit more efficient in the way it's processing fuel. So it's shifting, um, metabolism to more free fatty acid metabolism, which ultimately helps the heart a little bit. It gives it a little bit of a boost and it makes things a little bit easier on the heart. Otherwise I would just add, and I think it, you know, we've already kind of touched on these points, but you know, this is a huge leap forward for us in the heart failure community just in the sense that this is a completely novel mechanism of action. It's looking at a drug that's really not affecting the neurohormonal system that much, which is really what we had been focusing on um, with heart failure probably for the past 15 to 20 years was really the RAS system and inhibition of the RAS system and its impact on patients' kind of neurohormonal baseline is really what we thought was kind of at the heart of heart failure. But this this data really makes us reanalyze in our HEFREF patients as well, and we'll soon find out in our HEFPEF population too, what else is contributing to the, the pathogenesis of heart failure and what other mechanisms are at play potentially with the SGLT2s that we don't know about that are further molecular targets for additional therapy. Thank you again, Ted, for joining me today, and we appreciate hearing your thoughts on this trial and, and really continuing the conversation on Twitter. Absolutely. Thank you again, Tracy. I appreciate it. What do we have coming up, Liz? What's our next episode here? Well, our next episode is the first of a two-part series with some outgoing residency directors talking about their experience in PGY2 cardiology in general, featuring Dr. Carrie Pickworth of The Ohio State University and Dr. Rob DiDomenico of the University of Illinois at Chicago. For more information, you can visit our site at cardioscripts.com. For more questions or conversation, join us on Twitter at Cardioscript. Talk to you next time. Did I lock you? Sorry, buddy. Oh, there you are. Sorry. Lock the oh, cat okay. in the pantry, actually. Wow. Who's your cat? The cat is so cute. Oh, my God. <laughs> Cat's name is Finn. Yeah, I saw Finn got up here. He wanted to get yeah. in on the action. Have a little bit of a conversation. It's all yeah. his little ears and then all of Finn's face. I wish Finn would have meowed there, adding his uh, two cents on Depagliflozin. <laughs>